certainly have fears that there is a serial killer at loose in Perth. Sarah Spears, Jane Rimmer, Kira Glennon. And every time you saw a young girl walking by, you think, oh God, is she going to be the next victim? Now, one man stands accused. If police are right and Edwards is the Claremont serial killer, he's been hiding in plain sight for 20 years. The judge deciding the fate of Bradley Edwards today banned anyone inside the court from revealing distressing details of Jane Rimmer and Kira Glennon's post-mortems. Welcome to Day 31 of Claremont in Conversation. Natalie Bongiolo joining you with Tim Clark and forensic scientist Brendan Chapman. Tim, can you explain what this suppression order means? Uh, yeah, hi Nat. Well, yes I can. Um, so, off the top of the proceedings this morning... Uh, Carmel Barbara Gallagher, the prosecutor, got to her feet and uh, said the judge told the judge that she wanted to raise something, and that something was that overnight there had been um, discussions and submissions made to her, chiefly by the families of Kiri Glennon and Jane Rimmer, uh, outlining their concerns that uh, of, of of what was to follow today, which was evidence chiefly from pathologist um, Karen Margolius via the statements that she'd made and then from uh, uh, Clive Cook um, in person. The body of that evidence was to be all the details um, from the post-mortems of of both Kira and Jane. And Ms Barbara Gallo said that the the minutiae of those and the, the real detail of those had been basically kept from the families for their own well-being out of a sense of sensitivity um, for the the duration basically since 1996 and 1997 and the families had no uh, wish to come across those details that they had been kept from them via the media well, that was their wish anyway. And so Miss Barbara Gallo raised that with the judge this morning, Justice Stephen Hall, gave the reasons for it and asked for a temporary suppression order to be, play, to be put in place um, for the duration of the evidence, which I think is going to go into next week or we know is going now going, going into next week, so that all that evidence can be heard in a block by Justice Hall and then he could maybe make a ruling at the end of all that evidence um, as to what he thinks should be let into the public domain is in the public interest while striking a balance to protect the the sensitivities of the the families of Jane and Kira. And so that is what Justice Hall did. He made that temporary suppression order on the basis that he we will revisit it um, and can revisit it at his own leisure. And more um, pertinently for us as media, if we wanted, if as organisations or as a media en masse, we wanted to make a submission to the court um, about that temporary suppression order, we were well within our rights to do so. Um, and so that was where it was left this morning. So we heard from a couple of um, uh, witnesses first, and then um, uh, the pathologist Karen Margolis's various statements were read into evidence um, at length 
famous Barb Gallo, and it is those, or the, the, the detail of those and the content of those <clears throat> that we are, um, as it stands tonight, um, suppressed from uh, reporting and revealing. Is it an unusual suppression order in any way? Um, from talking to other um, to, to lawyers that represent um, Seven West Media, which I work for, the media company I work for, um, and other lawyers that ha- that deal in this area, um, the reasons for the suppression order are, uh, I've been told are quite unusual in, in the terms of the, the only real reason it was brought forward was because of worries by the family about the sensitivity of the material to be to be voiced. Um, usually that is a consideration that is taken into into account by a judge but not usually the sole reason for it um, but uh, as we've said so many times this case is neat and extraordinary and and so uh, um, this is another one of those extraordinary things that has, that has happened in the in the mm. process. Brendan, you've been involved in many court cases such as this. Is this something that you've come across before, that um, details such as this are are suppressed, um, I guess, for sensitivities? No, this is not something I'm familiar with. Um, I guess given the the size of this trial and and the enormous public interest, I can can see why, Um, but it's certainly not something I've seen before. Yeah, I mean, I guess none of us can imagine... Um, just what the families are going through and this unimaginable horror that they're living through. And as you said, Tim, they're not sitting in court for this particular evidence themselves and don't want to hear it through the media. Correct. They were warned or forewarned of of what was likely to uh, come at some stage this week and um, were gently advised that perhaps um, it wouldn't be in their best interests to be there for it, not that they want to be anyway, I wouldn't have thought, but through some liaison with um, police officers and, and people that have been working with them um, from the court, um, and, and, and certainly they weren't here today, um, but um, they did, through Ms. Barbara Gallo, make their, um, uh, um, their feelings quite clear as, as to what they would like to happen. Um, but to um, uh, um, to be fair to us, and, and, and the judge, Justice Stephen Hall, was fair to the media, um, that we were entitled to have a say. He would listen to what we had to say about it um, going forward, and then he would he would be very open to hearing what we had to say, and then he would make a decision, a final decision, um, when he feels the time is right, which. Um, <clears throat> Um, which I'm, I'm sure he will do. I'm curious as to perhaps why this wasn't considered earlier, knowing that this evidence was going to be um, coming. It's almost a little bit like when the screens were put up mm. um, because all of a sudden it was realised that this um, footage that was too distressing to show to the court needed to be screened. And it seems like we're sort of in this situation again now, you know, even to hear it or for it to be broadcast is too sensitive. Yeah, um, it's an interesting point, that, and it's one that there are a million moving parts in a, in a trial of this size, obviously, and there are many things that are being done on the run, I suppose, on the fly, but on decisions being made on an hourly basis on, on what questions to be asked and what evidence that should be brought. 
And then there are also outside factors, such as the media, such as family, such as attendees in court, such as security, such as Mr. Edwards, um, you know, uh, ongoing well-being, I suppose, if you want to put it that way. Um, and these things are all trying to move as one um, to get the trial to go forward. Um, we believe or understand that um, as this uh, as this evidence was coming closer and and the detail around it was 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 getting um, more detailed, if you want, from other witnesses that that were were being called. Um, that there might have been some, uh, you know, extra sensitivities um, felt by the families, and, and, and that is might what have might have prompted this uh, submission to to via the prosecution today. But as hopefully responsible media outlets, we 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 are well aware of the sensitivities around it. We wanted and continue to want to not get in the way of the judicial process, but be able to uh, report as freely as we possibly can. Um, and so, um, you know, that, that is that is where we found ourselves today, and, and we were very willing to abide by any order the court makes, obviously, yeah. because there are serious ramifications if you don't. Uh, the, the the other ex- um, unusual part of the of the suppression order was also that it, it was it was not just directed at the media as they usually are it was it was specifically and pointedly directed to people that were in within the court as well i.e. members of the public and they were warned both verbally and in the order that it, it applied to them as well so they were not to go and just because they they had the privilege of hearing this evidence in person because they would taken the trouble to go to court that was, that was always going to be the case but they were not to allowed to broadcast it via any social media channel or even any verbal channel to people who weren't in the court. And the judge made that very clear to anyone who was in the court. Um, and uh, they were left in, in no uncertain terms as, as to their responsibilities as well. So just to make that clear for listeners, that means that... For instance, not only can you not tell us now in this podcast, but you can't walk outside that court and go home and tell a member of your family. No, no one is to repeat no, anything right. said within that court today. Mm. And that goes for me and anyone else who was in there. And there were obviously, as there has been for many, many days, many, many people. Um, so it applies to them. And um, the the. Uh, the ramifications, the repercussions of breaking an order like that is a contempt of court, potential contempt of court charge, which does bring with it a, a potential prison sentence. So uh, the, that's why we take these orders as media seriously, and um, that, that's why anyone should take them seriously. Brendan, the details um, from a post-mortem are obviously very distressing. How often would family members be privy to some of those finer details as um forensics we we have less involvement or very minimal involvement with the family so um i can't i can't speak from personal experience but i certainly do know that um the detective family of the victim relationship um is is a bit like any relationship i suppose it it depends on 
situation and, and it's a bit of a, a work in progress as to how that relationship evolves, I suppose. So depending, and, I, and I'm assuming here, but depending on how eager the family are for information would probably determine what level of information is fed back to the family. Of course, I'm sure they're entitled to know as much as they want. Um, and if they request that, then by all means, I'm, sh I'm sure they're able to have that information. It really just comes down to how that relationship is managed, I suppose, by the police investigators. Yeah. Well, um, Tim, as you mentioned, there were two other witnesses in court today who um, those details are open to the public. Mm -hmm. And the first was the forensic dentist. Uh, yes. So um, he gave evidence uh, in terms of um, the process of identification of the body. So uh, I'm sure a lot of our listeners would have heard um, that uh, one method of identification is obviously dental records because your uh, uh, your dental makeup is can be as an adult as unique as your, your fingerprint or your DNA and so that was the process that was uh, gone through that um, the uh, Glennon family doctor came in um, as part of that identification process with a, a, a periodontist who, who, who specialised in that um, procedure um, and he described how, how that was done, basically. Um, and even then, we were told of uh, sensitivities um, around that procedure, um, given that um, the, the, the dentist that was involved in bringing in the dental records of, of, of uh, Ms. Glennon was um, shielded somewhat from the, um, the entirety of her remains because the, uh, the, the periodontist who was giving evidence said, we realized that that might be psychologically um, harmful to him, <clears throat> given that he had a long-standing um, uh, medical relationship with the family um, and so the the remains themselves were shielded as much as possible um, apart from the mouth and the teeth um, so that inspection could take place and formal identification could take place after it. Brendan, is that the usual process that a forensic dentist would then need to call in a family dentist um, to look at the results? Yeah, just, just like most things in forensics, we have a, a sample that we're comparing to another sample or a reference. Um, and in the case of dental records, these are, these are, you know, hugely detailed documents that are kept by dental practices. Um, you know, they regularly x-ray um, and their notes are, are really quite unique um, in being able to assist uh, the forensic odontologist to make that identification. So without that, he's really just looking at a set of teeth um, without having a comparison point in order to then say, okay, this matches the comparison point. The other thing that, uh, or the other benefit of having these documents maintained by dental practices are that, that they have, you know, largely very thorough and well-documented um, notes and, and um, they're well characterised by patient details and everything, so they're quite a good source of information. Brendan, is this um, usually the way that a, a body is identified? Yeah, there's there's three kind of gold, gold standard identification techniques that we use in forensics and they are um, forensic odontology or dentistry, um, fingerprint 
uh, comparison and DNA. Now, fingerprint comparisons and odontology can both be achieved quite quickly. Um, so they're usually the, the first pass in, in establishing an identification of a body. This is assuming someone can't visually identify um, a, a, a loved one or, or a family member. Um, DNA kind of plays second fiddle to those two because it takes a little bit longer um, and ultimately it's a bit more of a costly exercise as well. So very normal. So this is another person who's in the post-mortem. Tim, was um, the dentist uh, quizzed on what he was wearing and how he arrived and if he could have possibly transferred, you know, any fibres or cross-contamination? Yeah, I mean, they are becoming standard questions, Matt. So, uh, yes, yes, he was. Um, And he was also um, shown... Uh, video of the of the post mortem of of Kira as well, and asked um, questions around her her positioning, um, particularly on the floor, which we discussed earlier, which was done not out of any disrespect, but more out of a, a, um, an ability to 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 get um, uh, photos that were needed. Um, but yes, they are standard questions that we're we're very used to, and he and he, and he did answer them and. Uh, there was also, there was um, mention of cars and things that that he drove, but um, uh, at no great length, and the, uh, to be honest, of of, of no great significance because it, it didn't it, it didn't really glean any any evidence that might become um, uh, significant. You also heard from uh, the state's mortuary manager, and we were meant to hear from him yesterday. Of course, that was postponed. Um, what did he reveal today? Yes, this is um, Anthony White. Um, he is currently the state mortuary manager. He wasn't at the time, um, but he was on staff. And again, a, a hugely experienced mortuary um, technician. Um, it, 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 they've all seem to have been asked the same question, how many post-mortems have been involved in? Um, his number was 60,000. He, he estimates over his um, long and, and, and uh, uh, very experienced career, um, and yeah, once again, he was he was probed about um, uh, what he particularly did um, about uh, techniques used in the mortuary then compared to now. Um, and uh, the one thing that that um, was particularly honed in on was during his um, attendance at, at Jane's autopsy. He was asked particularly about his gloves and, and, and this, this again went to um, areas of possible contamination he placed uh, at one point in the uh, in the video of Jane's autopsy you could see his gloves um, placed on the floor and then picked up again um, and he was asked what he did with them whether he put them back on again he said he honestly and truly couldn't remember um, there was some later footage of, of him wearing another set of gloves he was asked whether they were the same ones said again he honestly um couldn't remember um and then um at, at his presence at uh, at uh, kira's post-mortem um the following year um he was again asked for his role which was simply to do whatever he could um, at the request of Cara, of, of dr margolis to to help her um in that uh, in that process um so yeah it was it was uh, pretty brief evidence from from both those people um and but 
part of part of the process it needed to be go go through as we've discussed to to basically tick off anyone and everyone who was at at those uh, post mortems um, to 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 get first hand evidence uh, of what they did and what they saw and what and and, uh, and what they possibly could have done that might have um, put them in contact with um, with with the bodies. Um, when you mentioned the 60,000 post-mortems, it is an extraordinary figure. Um, Brendan, did you know that anyone in the state or in the country would have actually performed that many procedures? I know Tony's been around the mortuary for a long time, but I never envisaged that sort of number. Um, I'd worked with Tony on a number of PMs. Um, but sixty thousand—that's that's quite astonishing. Yeah, yeah. I don't think that's uh, not uh, actual personal involvement because of the, he becomes, uh, as we heard from Bob McDermott last week, when you become the mortuary manager, you have involvement in the in the planning of them, the staffing of them, the pre- preparation of them, the documentation of them, all all those type of things. So I I, I think that that would rather than in physical involvement, that's what he meant. But it's, it is still a staggering number. And he did mention um, that there could be up to 10, maybe on a really busy day, 15 post-mortems performed at the state mortuary because, as its name suggests, it is the um, the facility for the state of Western Australia, which is a massive geographical area. And, and, and certainly the population has, very, has grown a, a lot in the last 20 years as well. I imagine that if you've been involved in that many procedures, um, you may be able to answer this, Brendan. Would it be quite difficult to have an independent memory of every single procedure that you've been involved in? Yeah, it's very much similar to what we're seeing with the um, the crime scene guys who are relying really heavily on their notes, um, and that simply just comes down to the fact that they're they're doing this is this is their day job. They do it every day, um, and. The the notes are in some cases all they have to go back on in order to remember it because, I mean, to use 60,000 post-mortems as an example, even if that number was, you know, a tenth, it's it's still a huge amount of post-mortems for any one individual to have explicit detail in what they recall from, from that instance. Tim, was Mr White um, quizzed about protocols back then and, and procedures? Um, yes, yeah, briefly, um, and uh, particularly more a historical context of, of where DNA um, technology and knowledge was um, as at 96 and 97 compared to now, um, and also in terms of uh, physically how a post-mortem at, at the state mortuary is, is conducted, because we'd heard previously that um, particularly during Kira's there might well have even been another body or body bag in the vicinity um, at that time. He said uh, certainly now that that never happens and they are all done on, on a sort of individual basis and, and in terms of DNA technology um, uh, well I mean I think we even the most unclued up um, true crime follower in the public would know that DNA technology as at 9697 is uh, vastly inferior to, to, to what it is what it is now um, in terms of the you know the testing and the understanding of, of maybe how DNA um, and certainly trace DNA can be um, can could be um, passed on from from one person to another. 
Did they, um, Did he talk about um, whether face masks were the norm back then? Because obviously some people have had them on, some people haven't. Um, yeah, yes, that, well, I think that was raised as well. And in general, terms, many of the mortuary staff have been asked that, um, whether, they, whether it was a standard um, issue piece of equipment. Many of them said it wasn't, but they, they were available. Um, but all of them have said the understanding or the, the, the issuing of them was not a, a forensic thing in terms of possible contamination. It was more a self-preservation thing in terms of dealing with um, uh, matter that might be um, a, a contaminant, basically, um, when you're dealing with sometimes remains that it were were heavily decomposed and you know, there was a fear then and now that, that that could possibly lead to some sort of contamination of yourself and so that that's what the masks were there, there for rather than to, to protect um, any potential evidence. Brendan, would you say that there, you know, is there a time when that really did become standard procedure? Um, I couldn't speak specifically, but um, I do know that... Uh, all of the forensic facilities at some point in, in the history going back would have gone through um, what we, we call an accreditation, I suppose. Um, and that's where essentially a, a central body um, undertakes a review of the processes and, and kind of uh, gives it their rubber stamp to say that they meet a certain um, level of quality control. It's similar to, I suppose, what you'd say an Australian standard. Um, in Australia and in forensics, the, the, the main um, authority for that is, is NATA, which is the National Association of Testing Authorities. Um, I couldn't speak specifically about when those audits or when that accreditation came into forensics in Australia, um, but that's been ongoing for a number of years. Okay, well, we have some listener questions for you relating to DNA from Kay Brown. Just wondering if the DNA from all crimes in WA are in a central database, and if not, why? Yeah, they, they, they are, um, and that's what the legislation that came through in the early 2000s was about. It was about um, the ability to collect DNA from um, people uh, charged, and, uh, charged or convicted of um, particular offences in WA. And so when we take that DNA, that goes on to both a state and national database. So there's a, there's a state database of all the DNA um, profiles, and there's also a national database of all the DNA profiles. So when DNA is collected from a person or from a crime scene, it's matched between all other samples collected in the country and even across to New Zealand, I think. You know, we've, we've seen these sort of um, TV series where these matches pop up on DNA databases and they've got their guy. Is it like we see on the telly? It's absolutely not that exciting, I'm afraid. Um, it, it's not the, the image of kind of this digital photo, identikit photo that pops up and says, you know, this is the bad guy. And they always look like bad guys too, remember. Um, it's much... It's much less interesting. It's much more along the lines of what you would expect to see in reams and reams of Excel sheets, I'm, I'm sorry to say. So it's not even a graph with spikes on or anything, Brendan, that no. you can over, overlay and, and, and that's definitely we've got our man? No, nothing that interesting, I'm afraid. 
Yeah, we did ask you when you were in last week if, if you know, it was the forensic scientist who would have that eureka moment where they realise they've got the match in front of them. Yeah, there's certainly, like, uh, there is, um, but then the, you also need to have this element of composure as well because <laughs> once you identify a match, um, of course there's excitement that surrounds that, but then we also have process we need to follow and that needs to be peer-reviewed by another scientist to make sure that our results are correct before we can release it. And I guess it, it kind of takes the excitement away. <laughs> because you've got to have it double-checked, triple-checked. And so it's a bit like VAR in the football in the, in, um, in the UK at the moment. Everyone, when, when they score a goal, they, there's the initial joy and then they look, they've got to look on a screen to make sure that it's going to be, uh, going to be ticked off by the uh, powers that be. Exactly. Well, I hope that that answers that question for the listener. Uh, from Sophie, in terms of evidence, Tim mentioned that regarding Bradley Edwards, there is an undeniable series of coincidences. And if we join the dots, could someone please explain the relationship between uncanny coincidence and reasonable doubt? That's for you, I guess, Tim. Um, yes. So uh, I think I was talking in the context of um, Sarah's case being a purely circumstantial case um, and what the prosecution are, are basically arguing is if we can prove that Mr Edwards was the killer of Kira uh, via the DNA and the fibre evidence and the other um, similarities between that case and Jane's case which also contains f physical fibre evidence that they say points to Mr Edwards um, then the, that should be their argument is well you extrapolate that out and what are the um, chances that um, someone who did those things to Kira and Jane wouldn't have done it to Sarah um, and that that is their argument that there is a there is a line between these cases that is undeniable in terms of their similarities and so if we can prove that the, the backwards to forwards if you like in, in date time if we can prove Kira prove Jane then it goes to Sarah and so um, that, that, that's what I meant by an undeniable series of coincidences um, and joining the dots but re where reasonable doubt comes in is exactly where reasonable doubt comes in it, it's, it's, it's that can and this is what the defence will argue can you, even if you do, um, if you do find um, Mr. Edwards guilty of of Kira and um, of Jane's murders, can you even then still make the jump and say there, there is no possible other um, explanation um, to 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 this to Sarah's killing other than it has to be Mr. Edwards and and. So that, that, that is the argument that will be had long and strong towards the end of this case when the closing arguments come. It, 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 from one side, Ms. Barbara Gallo says, well, you, you have to make that leap because there is no other um, logical conclusion. Um, but Mr. Jovic will say, well, you know, you've got to, first you've got to prove the other two, and then he, even if you do that, is that, is that, is that leap of faith too far um, and, and I'm sure that's what he will argue, is that yes, it is, because there has to be a doubt, because we, there is no physical evidence, there is no evidence that Mr. Edwards even came into, into 
contact with Syria, let alone killed her. Mm. Um, so that that is that, that those are the arguments that have been made briefly and are yet to be made right at the end of the case when we've, when we've heard all the evidence, <clears throat> including, obviously, most importantly, the physical evidence being the DNA and the fibres. There's another question relating to the evidence. Can the PathWest contaminated evidence have any influence or is it lo- no longer admissible? Well, um, and that's jumping ahead because, obviously, that the, 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 uh, the question of contamination comes from the defence side, uh, that is their contention that it could be, but uh, there there is there is no evidence to that effect yet. And the prosecution very strongly argue, or have argued in their opening, and will argue in the months to come that it's not contaminated, and so that's why it is in. So that's where all those all that argument, which which we understand will begin in the middle of February, um, will centre around um, the, the prosecution saying. Well, there is no contamination. You can't. There's no proof of any contamination, and so the only other explanation is that evidence, that DNA evidence, comes from Mr. Edwards during a, a struggle um, when Kira was was fighting for her life. Well, there's been almost 150 witnesses so far, and we know that the next couple now are out of bounds in terms of talking about their evidence out of respect for the family. Um, Tim, you did allude to this earlier, but will this evidence that's um, you know going to be presented over the next couple of days will that ever be released? Yeah. So as I said right at the start, now this is a temporary suppression order that the Justice Hall has, has placed on it today. He said he's very open to hearing arguments from all sides um, as to whether that suppression order should be lifted altogether, whether it should be amended, um, or whether it should stay in place. Um, as a media organisation, Seven West Media um, have put in uh, um, a written submission to the court um, over the course of the day with our with our thoughts about this. Um, and my understanding, um, very late or very just before um, we started talking today, is that um, all the all the parties, prosecution, defence, um, the judge, the court itself. Have have um, received that submission. Are going to consider it overnight, um, and there may be some, hopefully, some um, some more discussion about it in the morning. So, um, my hope is that we, uh, um, as all parties, can come together and reach some agreement, which will lead to us being able to report um, something of what's been said today by so. We are allowed to say that Dr. Margolis' statements were all read in, and Dr. Clive Cook, who's the, one of the other forensic pathologists, began giving evidence in person today. Um, my hope is um, that we will be able to report um, some of that um, as far as, as as we can um, to um, to go to the pertinent points without going into details which might be um, unreasonably distressing for um, the families. And obviously for other other people as well, because this is not normal detail that that we would normally report. But um, as this case is so detailed, and that is um, that that is the nature of, of the proceedings. So um, yes, I, th- I think that uh, I I think we will be able to report some of it, but at this point, I'm not sure how much. Um, and um, but we're we're being as responsible as you can, and and and, and trying to um, trying to uh, reach a, a happy medium. We're reporting 
um, um, informs the public but doesn't um, distress the, 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 the families. And we would like to let listeners know that um, when the suppression order was handed down today, we did edit yesterday's episode, that was day 30, um, to fall in line with those wishes. So um, people might notice there is a cut in there that seems a little out of place. Well, Tim and Brendan, thank you both for your time. And you can email us at claremontpodcast at wanews.com.au. We'll be back tomorrow with Alison and Tim to wrap up week seven of Claremont in Conversation. This podcast was produced by Kate Ryan and Alicia Preedy and recorded in the studios of Seven West Media. Audio files were provided from the archives of the Seven Network and the West Australian. Sign up for daily emails and all the latest on the Claremont trial at thewest.com.au. Enjoying this podcast? If the story behind the headline matters to you, then you can count on thewest.com.au to deliver. For more on Claremont The Trial, follow the live blog, watch the nightly news updates, and sign up for daily email updates at thewest.com.au. Subscribe now for just a dollar a day at thewest.com.au.